This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Saturday, December 9th, 2023. I'm Caleb Brown. Last week, the U.S. Supreme Court heard Securities and Exchange Commission v. Jarkissi, a case that challenges the broad power of federal agencies to conduct their own court-like legal proceedings and delay access to federal courts for the people facing federal civil penalties. Cato's Tommy Berry and Oliver Dunford of the Pacific Legal Foundation evaluate the oral argument and how the Supreme Court might act. We've discussed issues related to this before, which is the idea that federal agencies are able to, in many instances, adjudicate cases in which those agencies are parties. And they Everything sort of has the feel and look of a courtroom, but of course, it's not a real courtroom in in the sense that we think about going to court. It is, uh, in fact, an agency employee that is uh, doing the adjudication. So where does that stand in terms of the constitutional basis for allowing federal agencies to make their own determinations about in a sense, guilt or innocence or liability, I suppose. Yeah. Generally speaking, the executive branch agencies are allowed to adjudicate cases against regulated parties and in the process can limit the party's freedom to continue to participate in uh, the field and can fine them for violations of laws and statutes. Tommy, what is Mr. Jarkissi's position or what what is his claim or the the claims against him in these agency courts so my understanding at a very broad level is that he was an investment advisor he ran various uh, seminars and educational programs giving investment advice and the SEC has many regulations about what you can and can't say what you can and can't guarantee those types of things and I, I believe, the SEC claimed and and has charged him with violating various rules about, say, violating guarantees or, you know, selling his system as more foolproof than perhaps it actually is. So it essentially brought charges both to to fine him and to take away his his license as an investment advisor. Oliver, why would uh, an agency avoid taking this to, I mean, I use this term, but I feel like it's really appropriate a real court? Well, there are some somewhat legitimate reasons for doing so. It can be a more efficient process doing it in-house as opposed to in court. Sometimes the fines are minimal, and so the regulated parties themselves may want to go through the administrative process to save themselves the expense. Uh, They may see the administrative action as kind of a nuisance. They want to pay their fine and get on. But There's also a problematic side, and and agencies know that they have a friendly audience in-house. After all, they are are prosecuting the case before another employee. So in Jarkissi's case, uh, employees of the Enforcement Division of the Securities and Exchange Commission tried the case in front of an ALJ, an administrative law judge, who is also employed by the SEC, and then any appeal goes to the full commission. And there have been studies on this that shows that these kinds of in-house actions favor the agencies. And if I recall correctly, in a previous conversation, Oliver, with your colleague, Will Yateman, and my former colleague, Will Yateman, the agencies have a stunning record 
in their own courtrooms. Yeah, it's it's something, and and there's disputes, of course, about this. But a lot of studies have shown over ninety percent, ninety five percent win rate in front of agencies, as opposed to a sixty percent win rate in court. So it can be a significant uh, advantage for the agencies. And Tommy, when somebody gets their case taken out of the agency and it goes to court, that would seem to color how the real court might handle it. Absolutely. And crucially, it it adds not just an independent judge, but an independent jury, both of which are missing in the agency context. Uh, Not only is the ALJ running the proceedings, but is making the ultimate determination. And so usually the key reason that uh, someone would want to remove their case to federal court is not not only that they want, you know, at the actual proceedings of a federal court, but that they also want an independent jury to decide their liability or not. And Oliver, as you and I were discussing before we started recording, it goes even deeper than that. The findings of fact that a court, a real court, <laughs> would be uh, confronted with are largely determined by the agency. That's right. And leading up to that, the agencies have their own rules. Hearsay can be allowed in many cases, and the procedural rules often favor the agencies, all of which, as you say, leads up to findings of fact, first by the ALJ, but then on appeal to the full agency. Many agencies are allowed to disregard the ALJ's findings and present their own facts, even though they heard no witnesses and they're, they're reading the documents uh, without the benefit of live testimony. And when the case finally gets to a court, for review, the courts have to rely on the agency's findings of fact. And as, as Tommy said, there's no jury and the uh, courts do not conduct a de novo. You know, they don't start over and look at the facts. They accept the facts as found by the agencies. Tommy, what should the court do here? Well, the court has several options. Remarkably, Jarkissi won on not just one, but three grounds at the Fifth Circuit level. The Fifth Circuit agreed with him that he had the right to a jury agreed with him that the statute gave too much unbounded and unguided discretion to the executive branch to decide when to bring these charges in agency proceedings, and it decided that the ALJs had too much insulation from accountability in their tenure protections. Essentially, Jarkissi just has to win one out of three, and he gets what he wants, which is his case in, in federal court as opposed to the agency proceeding. Based on how oral argument went, where the court and the advocates focused exclusively on the Seventh Amendment issue, I think that's where the court is looking as as the clearest violation based on the constitutional text. So I think most likely what the court will do and what the court should do is simply decide that this violated his Seventh Amendment right to a civil jury trial, uh, and then it can leave the other two issues for another day. Oliver, this is it seems like there have been a lot of cases at the U.S. Supreme Court where somebody is challenging a federal agency just for the right to be in court. Yeah, there's been a lot of cases lately. As as Tommy mentioned, one of the issues here is the removal protection. That has uh, taken up a lot of the court's time. Uh, One problem that we see from, from those cases, however, is there's a big question about what the remedy should be in those cases, whether the agency can correct the removal protection But here, it seems like the remedy would be a full trial in court with a jury. And that seems like a real remedy as opposed to simply a redo of the administrative proceeding. If, Tommy, as you say, the court only takes up one of these issues, 
what would be you said he only has to win on one of these very three various grounds and he gets what he wants but in terms of the broader issue of rationalizing executive versus judicial power what is the big swing that the court could take in dealing with this I'd say the biggest swing, would, the most unexpected swing, would be if it reached the uh, unbounded discretion issue, essentially raising the non-delegation doctrine claims. So that's a doctrine that court has never officially overruled, but it's essentially lain dormant for about 90 years since uh, two laws were struck down during the New Deal era, and none have been struck down since. Um, this is something that would be a huge shift in administrative law if the court actually struck down a, a rule or a statute under the non-delegation doctrine, it came close to in a case called Gundy about five years ago, before uh, Justice Kavanaugh and, and Justice Barrett joined the court. So I'd be surprised if they reached it here, because there are many cases teeing up that issue. But if they did reach that question, that would be a sea change. And I, I see another big potential, even uh, limited to the jury question, and that would be uh, how the court Two questions, actually. One, is there an, a separate right to a jury trial that respondents can raise in the administrative proceedings? The kind of the uh, conventional wisdom is that a jury attaches only if you're in court. And therefore, first you have to get to court, and only then can you ask for a jury. Uh, there were a number of questions at oral argument that suggested that the Seventh Amendment alone could get you out of an administrative hearing and into court. And the second big issue that could arise is if the court decides to address the distinction between private rights and public rights. A private right is, broadly speaking, uh, the right to life, liberty, or property. And everyone agrees that if the administrative proceeding involves a private right, then it must be in court. The problem is that the Supreme Court has broadly defined public rights, which one can think of as something like a social security benefit. Or and the reason it's broadly defined uh, is that some Supreme Court cases say that if there's a comprehensive regulatory regime and the government is acting in its sovereign capacity, then anything it does in those situations is a public right, and that can be uh, done in an administrative adjudication. This case, as Tommy said, involves a securities violation, and it it's basically a misrepresentation claim that Jarkissi misrepresented material facts to potential investors. It seems like a traditional case that belongs in court, especially when uh, the penalties here are a big fine and a revocation of Mr. Jarkissi's uh, investor's license. Now you mentioned licensing. And so I'm wondering when you define public rights versus private rights, if uh, letting this guy have his trial and yet yet keeping in place this a broad notion of public rights, if that doesn't create yet another incentive for federal agencies to license a whole range of human activity. Yeah, it's certainly a circular jurisprudence right now. The, the court says, again, if, if an area is highly regulated or if it's subject to a comprehensive regulation, then it's a public right. But of course, the, the government can highly regulate an area. It can establish a comprehensive uh, regulatory regime. Uh, and so if that's the case, then Congress can improperly uh, withdraw cases that should be in court and place them in the administrative adjudication. 
Oliver Dunford is a senior attorney at the Pacific Legal Foundation. Tommy Berry is editor-in-chief of the Cato Institute's Supreme Court Review. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast anywhere you please. And thank you for listening. 